So we're closing out our series. Thank you. Um, we're closing out our series tonight with a panel of members that we love and we know dearly. Uh, and just to remind you that our series has been around this topic of embodied hope. This idea that we have so many theological resources, so many blessings uh, historically in the scriptures. Uh, to help us through series of suffering, things of pain, which we all experience when we live in a sad and miserable world uh, that is broken. It doesn't function the way that God made it to function, and not to mention we don't function the way that God made us to function. Uh, And so tonight we're going to hear from a panel uh, of Natalie Cofield, uh, Bo and Lisa Mitchum, Josephine Schaefer, uh, and Kevin and Lee Holt. If they are here, I would encourage you all to make your way up to your assigned seats. <clears throat> I'm going to pray for us, and, and Natalie's going to go first. Um, but the goal of tonight is for us to hear from these individuals that we know, these individuals that we know their stories, we've been with them in their stories, uh, and to hear about their pain and how Jesus met them uh, in uh, their pain and their suffering and what he taught them, how he revealed himself to them, um, and what they want you to learn from their experience. And so uh, I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to ask uh, Natalie to start. She's going to get um, extra onion rings. She'll be back. (laughs) Who can blame her? Let's pray. Father Almighty, Lord God, King of kings and Lord of lords, we bow our heads before you tonight and um, we acknowledge you as our sovereign God, the God that sees us and cares for us, the God that is writing a a story of redemption uh, through our lives and through uh, your providence in this world. And tonight as we come to hear from these individuals that we we love and care about, we pray that you would calm their hearts, that they would speak what's on their hearts, um, and that we would learn more about how Uh, gracious and kind and powerful and good our Savior is uh, to meet us in a suffering. That we don't just worship a God that knows about suffering, we worship a suffering God. A God that entered into our spaces, that bore our flesh, uh, that lived in a sad and and miserable world and was persecuted, nailed to a tree, um, laughed at, mocked, and all alone ultimately to absorb all the darkness of our sin and the darkness of this world and on himself to bring about redemption, uh, to seal uh, ultimately his promises to us, which is a new heavens and a new earth and a solid hope that he is alive and that he's making all things new. And so, Father, tonight as we hear, we pray that you would open up our hearts to receive what you have for us. 
So be with our panel as they share, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Natalie is going to go first. Everybody welcome Natalie. Can you hold this for just a second? Do you, do you want me to do like a song and dance real quick? or Okay. Uh, so there was this guy, want, I'm just kidding, I don't know what to say. <laughs> you good? Okay. All right. Natalie Cofield. Yes, I'm Natalie Cofield, and I belong to Glenn Cofield, who I wish was here. Um, I miss him very much. This is my husband that I lost four years ago, and we met at Ole Miss. He was a houseboy at the Katie House, and um, we have some really fun hotty toddy memories, and that's why I had to wear my red and blue for Glenn, because this is kind of how I would dress to go to games, and we'd get all excited and have fun, and I really miss him a whole lot. My whole family really misses him a lot. Yes, suffering, I don't even know what to say, and um, I have to just warn you that I'm kind of just, the Holy Spirit's just going to talk tonight, so I don't really know what's going to come up, and I don't really like to be in front of crowds, so this scares me a lot. So, um, yeah, it's real scary, but that's okay. I mean, that's what life's all about. It's scary. At least when I was young, I would get really, I had a lot of fear and anxiety growing up. So there's been a lot of suffering in my life. Uh, we've had, um, in college, I was raped when I was young, and I put that like in a box and never dealt with it. And then when I was in college, um, my cousin committed suicide. Then his brother committed suicide. Then my husband's house burned down. Then their business burned down. And it just keeps coming. And I was talking to somebody the other day, and they're like, what do you do to get ready for all this? Memphis is so scary. What do you do? I said, all I can tell you is just you need to get prepared. So my words today about suffering is the suffering is going to come. I don't know when or how, but it's coming. And I don't mean to scare you because really suffering has turned into a blessing to me, which is totally weird. But my hope and prayer would be that you would just prepare. And the way I have prepared since my tragedies is really just diving deep in God's word and loving Jesus and Jesus loving me. So my suffering, if I were to say one thing, what is suffering? What has suffering taught me now and today? I would say suffering has taught me that it is it has brought suffering has led me to the biggest love affair of all. And that love affair is really between God and myself. And I was talking and I was thinking today, like in my bed, I was like, I've always been wondering, what is my purpose? You know, we all kind of want to have a purpose. I'm a mom which is a big deal, but sometimes when we're moms, we don't think it's a big deal, but it's a very big deal. But today, I just realized my purpose is that I love Jesus and that Jesus loves me. And if we have that relationship, that intimate, clinging relationship, then we're going to make it. And that's how I've made it. And I didn't do it in my own strength. It was all of Jesus coming to me and holding me in my suffering. So I'll tell you the story if y'all want to know. So Glenn and I went to a party, and we never go to fundraisers. And in fact, that night I thought, 
why are we going to the fundraiser? This is crazy. We hate these things. But it was at a friend's house, and a lot of our friends were going to be there, so we went. And we were talking to a couple and talking about Memphis and how wonderful we love Memphis. It's a great place. And I really thought it was a great place. And that night, as we left, we walked out of the place, and Glenn was talking to his friends, and I was like, come on, come on, we got to go. So we were walking through, and we step into the parking lot, and it was very dark. And I remember looking at Glenn and going, it's really dark in here. That was sort of a red flag. I should have, like, I don't know but we had to get to the car. So we, another thing that happened is as I'm approaching, the, as we're approaching the car, you know, I knew we had some drinks, but Glenn probably had a few more. And so I said, why don't you let me drive? So I would have been in the passenger side, but we switched right before we got to the car. So I get in the car and Glenn walks around and I'm in the car and I hear this moaning, I mean, this talking sound, but like mumbling. I didn't really know what it was. I turned around, I saw a man in a hoodie, and I, all I could think of was, there's a homeless person. That's so odd. But Glenn's talking to a homeless person, so I turned around, and then I heard a gunshot. I slammed the door, and then I heard him moaning, and then I opened the door. I got out, cars flying out of the parking lot. I get around there, and Glenn is on the ground, eyes wide open and lifeless. It was, that's when my life and Glenn's life changed forever. It was a disaster. I mean, I don't even know what to say about it because it's so incredible that, excuse me, this shit would happen. Like, excuse me. Like, really? These things aren't supposed to happen. But it happens everywhere in Memphis. And it's, it's, um, it's unbelievable, but it's gotten worse. So suffering is all around us. It really is. And so, you know, I made all these phone calls. The sirens are coming, sitting in the back of the cop car. I mean, it was just a lot. And we were just in total shock. We camped out over at my cousin's house. It was weird how that happened. But God just protected our family and just allowed us to be together and just love each other and just live in shock together. Um, when, when I came home, I sat in a wingback chair in my kitchen. I swear for two years. I sat there and looked outside, and we were just like the walking dead. And you know how you have muscle memory? And your muscles know what to do after they've exercised a lot. Well, our bodies just knew what to do, so we probably looked really normal. And people probably thought, oh, things are looking okay. But inside, you're just like, there are no words. You're just living. But um, I learned a lot in those chairs sitting in that chair day after day, looking out the window. I had a bird feeder, and I would go out there, and I would feel that bird feeder. You know I'm old when I'm watching birds. I love birds. <laughs> I've become a big fan of birds. So I fill up the bird feeders, and I sit there, and I watch. And God is just saying, Natalie, look at those birds. Look at all those different birds. They're flying to the bird feeder. And you know the verse that talks about the birds and how God takes care of them, and if he takes care of them, how much more is he going to take care of us? Well, that verse came to life. That verse came to life. He's like, Natalie, you are like me. You're like God to those birds. Every time you go out there and put that food out there, those birds come. They don't have to worry about one thing, and they look so happy. They're flying around, 
and you can see every different kind of bird. And it was wonderful as I'm just sitting in the chair for two years. I learned so much about God's love for us through the birds and how he takes care of us. Because, I mean, we were shut down. I don't remember paying a bill for two years. I don't know who took care of us, but they did. God provides what you need when you need it. I love these visions because I'm an interior designer. I love art, and I have to see pictures, and God knows that. And so he sent the picture of the birds. Well, then two months later, what does God send? A um, street dog. (laughs) This street dog is over in your backyard, Jan. She should be yours, but she's mine. (laughs) So Houston, my oldest son, loves animals, and his dog was barking and barking. And there was this dog over in the neighbor's yard, Jan Bocek's yard. So that dog came into our house. I guess she's been on the street for a long time because she was really thin, pitiful looking. So I put her on my lap in the chair. You know, we're in the chair for two years. And she's in there looking bad. She's as bad as me. And I'm just petting that dog. Just petting the dog. Sitting in my chair. Watching the birds. And I hear, Natalie. Natalie. Why won't you accept that love like Zoink is just laying in your lap? And she's loving you, loving on her and petting on her. And he keeps saying, like, why won't you accept my love like that? Why won't you just sit and let me love you? Like, wow. Street dog is teaching me a lot. And she is a crazy dog with a crazy name. She lives up to her name, Zoink. And I still have her. You know, we have a love-hate relationship. She's weird. But I can't get rid of her because she's so much part of us now. So God is awesome how he meets us in our suffering and encourages us to keep going and um, just moves in our heart. Um, another thing, this started, see, I'm kind of, this is the ADD. I've got to go backwards now. It really all started with the first vision when we were remodeling our house. And you know when you're remodeling, it just tears up everything, and you get back to the studs. And what color are the studs? Black and brown. And then there's there's insulation and spiders and little mice, and it's kind of scary. When I was walking through my house, I was like, this is kind of scary. I wish I could push the rewind button. I don't really want to do this. This is going to be hard work. And what is God telling me in that vision? Natalie. I'm making all things new. I'm making all things new. It's going to be great. So, of course, I'm getting excited about it, thinking, you know, good things are about to happen. And that's sort of, I should have said that before all the other, because that happened really before Glenn even died. But just when y'all live life, absorb stuff, because there's such meaning and stories and all the visions that God will do for you and give you these gifts to remind you how much he loves us. I mean, I wouldn't be here today. I can promise you. Well, I might still be in that chair, for sure, if I didn't have Jesus. If, I did, if he didn't come to me and my suffering and woo me to himself and love me, I'd probably still be in that chair. So the last thing I, I guess I want to say, since I'm just kind of winging it here, is that I went to Italy with my children this summer. 
all of my kids could go. Scott had just had, got a new job, and he could go, and I was so excited. So we all went to Italy for two weeks. And the most fun thing I ever did the whole time I was there was go to the beach. I collect shells. I collect shark's teeth. I love all that stuff. I'm kind of weird. So I'm walking up and down the beach, and all I see are all these little green things all through the beach. And I'm like, what is that? That is awesome. So I'm like picking up all these things off the beach. I'm like, these are sea glass. A friend of mine said, man, you've been looking for sea glass for years. I said, oh, no, I got all these on my trip to Italy. I mean, I had to leave stuff behind in Italy to get the 10 pounds of sea glass home. I did buy another suitcase, but we have a lot of sea glass. I was just... It, in this vision or whatever, I don't even know what you want to call it, but I have to have these visuals or participate in it. So I'm, I'm, all I can do is I'm drawn to the sea. I mean, my, grandchild, my grandchild's here, my children, and I'm loving on them, but I'm like, i got to go gotta look, look for more sea glass. Up and down and up and down. I mean, for hours. Like, I am scouring teeny pieces, big pieces, brown pieces, green pieces. It's really weird. I mean, like three beaches worth of of stuff. It's a lot. So I love it. And they're dry. And the other day when I pulled them out, I was like, you know, they aren't quite as pretty as they were when I was at the beach. I mean, I'm I'm thinking some of these are rocks. You know, I'm not sure. But I know they're sea glass because they were beautiful when I picked them up. So all I could think of was, you know, God goes up and down. I mean, he's searching high and low for us. He comes for us. We don't go to him. He comes for us, which is amazing. Like me, you know, he's saying, Natalie, you're kind of like me. You were picking up the sea glass. I was picking up the sea glass, but God goes around and, and finds us. And each one of us is a jewel. I mean, these look like emeralds in the water. I'm not kidding. We are that special. We are jewels to God. Why don't we believe it? Does it take suffering to get there? Sometimes I think it does. And what's so amazing, and I know this sounds really weird, is a lot of times I'll say suffering to me has turned into a blessing. And the blessing is I'm learning a lot about stuff I don't, that a lot of things that I don't know. I don't know anything, so don't ask me. I don't know anything. We have to trust that God is going to teach us. And then I know that God is always there, even though when I don't feel him or see him, he is always there. And he is always pursuing me and always pursuing you. And what I was going to say is when the waves came up, I mean, the sea glass was beautiful. So to me, the water of the beach was like the Holy Spirit. I mean, this vision just came like two weeks ago. Because, you know, I told you they looked like rocks. I kind of questioned some of the sea glasses being rocks. But when I put it underwater, I was like, oh, my gosh, these things are beautiful. So when you, if you all want to later, you can come and look at it because they really do come to life. And I thought, you know, that's what the Holy Spirit does. When we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that gift that God gives us, we do nothing. He brings us to life and we shine. And what's super cool, you need to go to Italy. I swear, you got to go. That needs to be your next trip. And you got to go to the beach. 
because it is like jewels in the sand. It's incredible. And then you'll remember, God is coming after us just like I was going after that sea glass, and I'll never forget. And I'm so glad that I left all that stuff in Italy, and I have my sea glass. It was worth everything. God is good. God is love. God is good. And God is good all the time, even in the suffering. So thank you for listening to my story. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for those beautiful metaphors of, of God's presence and his love for us. Now, uh, Bo and Lisa Mitchum are going to share uh, uniquely around their journey through Parkinson's, and so I'm going to turn it over to them. Okay. We're not as entertaining as Natalie. That sure was sweet. It just gave us a little sense of levity as we talk about suffering here. Thank you. But... Um, little backstory, Bo was diagnosed with Parkinson's at age 49, 17 years ago. And um, at first, we were shocked, and it took us a while to process and grieve over that and what that meant for our future. And when we finally accepted the reality of it, we stopped and said, what does God want us to do with this? So we realized that he was calling us to live by faith and trust him. That was in 2006, and as our story progressed, Bo was still active and practicing medicine, and um, his Parkinson's suddenly became worse in 2013. Um, He had to take medical retirement at age 55 and go on disability, And we went through several months of having uh, surgeries at Vanderbilt Hospital for deep brain stimulator. And um, it was a scary time. But through all of that, God was calling us into a deeper trust and faith. Bo has never complained, and he still does not complain. And he always said optimistically, Well, at least I don't have cancer. But I guess God wanted more of us because then in 2016, he was diagnosed with oral cancer. And he went through a grueling treatment of 35 rounds of radiation and eight rounds of chemo. He was on a feeding tube and he lost 75 pounds. And after many, many months, he was pronounced cancer-free. But unfortunately, he was very weak, and um, the Parkinson's had really accelerated during that time because he couldn't work on exercise therapy and all the things you do to try to fight the Parkinson's. It's a progressive disease, so no matter where you are, it continually changes, and there's always new challenges. So um, we were focused on fighting the Parkinson's, and he was getting really strong and doing really well with it. We found this center in Arizona called Parkinson's Wellness Recovery, which was such a God thing. I don't know where Sally is, but she met someone on an airplane that she found out all this information about this resource for us, so it was really valuable and helpful. 
But then in 2022, he had a painful lump in his throat and his cancer had returned. So we began another regimen of treatments. And um, over last winter and uh, up until April, he was going through chemo again. So it's impossible to fight the Parkinson's when you're going through that kind of stuff. You can't exercise and just continue to get weaker and the Parkinson's accelerated. But in, um, in April, he was told that he now has no evidence of cancer disease and he's continuing immunotherapy at West Clinic to hopefully prevent any recurrence. And now our goal is to focus on fighting the Parkinson's again and regaining his strength. So I'm gonna let him tell you his story in his words. These are my own words, I want to share. But so that you can understand me, Lisa's going to repeat it as we go. I was a self-centered, performance-driven doctor when God intervened and took away my strength. He wanted more of me than, more perform than pure performance. He was a self-centered, performance-driven doctor when God intervened and stripped away his strength. He wanted more of Bo, not more performance. He made preparing me for a big change in my life by using IPC, a small group, accountable relationship with other men, sonship, and mission work. You're doing great. I think everybody can understand you. Um, God had been preparing him for a big change in his life by using the church, his small group, accountability groups, sonship, and mission work. He was drawing, drawing me into a deeper relationship with them. He had shown me himself and the depth of his love for me. God drew him into a deeper relationship with himself and showed him Himself and the depth of his love for him. I've been living with the Parkinson's for seven years when suddenly it got worse in a short period of time and I required deep brain stimulation surgery with a combination of six surgeries. And I knew I trusted God then. There was no doubt I was going to have the surgery and I never, never looked back. It was quite successful. I almost went a year with half the medicine that I didn't have before. You can keep going. A few years later, I was diagnosed with oral cancer, and I was scared, depressed, and in despair. But I turned to him and trusted him. I read a book by the doctor with ALS who said, anything God does in our life, good or bad, that prepares us to meet him as we approach, choose, as we approach eternity can only be interpreted as grace on his part. Let me repeat that. Anything God does in our life, good or bad, that prepares us to meet him as we approach eternity 
can only be interpreted as grace on his part. I chose to believe this. Even in the most difficult times, I feel loved and not alone. Knowing that gives us, knowing this gives me strength and joy and peace. I finally realized that even though God allows my suffering, he is both loving and graceful to me. In spite of my disease, I had the joy and privilege of being a witness for Jesus to others. I depend on my Lord who loves me and has saved me. I live to love him and glorify him no matter my Parkinson's, cancer, or whatever comes. This story would not be complete unless I talk about Lisa. She has been there as a caretaker, which is not an easy job, especially not me. But she's She's always there for me. She's always, we have a rule, don't pick anything up, but one of us pick it up. I scare her to death every day when I fall, but she's kind of, kind of used to it. <laughs> but I want, I want everybody to remember caretakers, of elderly parents or, or sick children are people who are coming from cancer. They're special people. I got the one who's most special. Well, I didn't know he was going to say that, but <laughs> <laughs> I will say that part of this journey is realizing what a gift it is for God to have given us each other and that I'm really, really thankful that I could be there to help Bo. And everybody doesn't have somebody when they're going through something like this. Uh, I am not always kind and, um, and happy about it, <laughs> but I really do consider it a privilege and I'm just so thankful that God gave us each other. It's, it's a miracle. Um, last week, Parker spoke on lament, and I thought it was very helpful. But just to think through that, because I think oftentimes we don't really talk about lamenting or practice lamenting. But um, lamenting is a way to process our pain and bring it to God. And he told us that Pain leads us to God's promises by the lamenting. It's a bridge to the promises. And um, each of us, not just those of us on stage, but many of you have different pain and suffering in your life, and you've been through a lot. Um, and like Natalie said, it's not going to stop. It, it's the way this world is, but... Our calling is the same, and the calling is for us to be faithful in our suffering. Because I'm sinful, I do not always respond faithfully, and um, I feel sorry for myself sometimes. I know Bo does too. I'm afraid. I'm discouraged. I get frustrated with him. I get angry. Um, he gets frustrated with me and discouraged and depressed, but 
the life of faith is repentance and believing. And so we constantly are in that life of repentance and faith. Um, we know that God wants us to lean on him and draw near to him and cry out to him in honesty and lament. This is from Parker's talk, but I thought it was really helpful to me just to analyze it. Lamenting without hope is despair. Hope without lament is naive optimism or a false happiness. But lamenting with hope is trusting in God in the midst of our suffering. In this, we allow him to take all our pain and suffering and trust him, and he will sustain us. Do I believe Romans 8.28? that he works all things together for my good and his glory. I struggle with unbelief every day, but in my heart I know that the truth is real and these things are true and nothing can happen outside of the sovereignty of God. He's sovereign over every detail of our lives and he allows our suffering. So I must ask him every day, what are you teaching me? What do you want me to do? How can this be used for my good and your glory? And this is what sustains us when we're struggling. I struggle every day, but I know that God's in control and he loves me. And that is where we find our hope. Now we're going to hear from Josephine Schaefer uh, and her story of losing her husband and a grandchild. So, um, Hello, everyone. Uh, Fred, my husband, died 26 years ago on June 19, 1997. And he was known by his friends as the director he could always, you know, direct everybody, get everything straightened out. Um, but then when cancer hit, he knew he couldn't direct anymore. And he was so humbled. Um, he said when he was diagnosed, the first thing, when he drove through town that day, I'll never forget him coming in the back door. I can still see him. He said everything looked so different as I drove through Memphis. It was just like. I can't do one thing about this, but God can do it. So he um, trusted, and I just have some things to share on how we saw God work with him. He was an elder here. He was an amazing man. But I'm going to tell you what, when he was diagnosed with cancer and he knew he couldn't do anything about it, only God could. He saw Jesus really for the first time, really as his Savior. There's a quote he, um, he had this framed. This was before he even had cancer. He just thought it was so spectacular. So I just have to read one part of this. Um, it's by Max Licato. And he said, um, The storm came, the rage, the fight, the ripped moorings, the starless night. Despair fell like a fog. 
your bearings were gone, and in your heart you knew there was no exit. Turn to your career for help, only if you want to hide from the storm, not escape it. Lean on your status for strength, for help, no, only if you want to hide from the storm, not escape it. Lean on your status for strength. A storm isn't impressed with your title. Rely on your salary for rescue. Many try, many fail. Suddenly you are left with one option, God. And when you ask and you genuinely ask, he will come. And from that moment on, he is not just deity to admire, a teacher to observe, or a master to obey. He is the Savior, the Savior to be worshipped. And Fred said that he would take cancer over and over and over again because he saw Jesus really, truly for the first time. I mean, he was a Christian, but he just never had focused on the deity and the love and the compassion of Jesus. And that just says it all. But there were some ways that um, God showed us that he was really right there. Fred said that he, after a while, he could not pick up a newspaper or a magazine or just a book to read because it didn't make sense. It just, everything was wobbly. But he could read the Bible. The Bible was the only thing he could read, and that was just God. That was just God doing it. And um, June the 4th, 1997, he um, was, well, before June the 4th, 1997, he was determined that he was going to find some help for his cancer. The director still was there a little bit. So <laughs> he told the doctor at West Clinic, just try something. Just try some chemo. I can, you know, I might help somebody. Well, it made him just deathly ill. Just that one day of chemo, deathly, deathly ill. And so the next morning I thought, you're not looking good. Fred, I think we should go to the hospital. He goes, do you want to become very unpopular? And I go, no, I don't want to be unpopular. And he said, well, we're not going to the hospital. I think he was scared for me to say, let's go to the hospital. He didn't want to give up. But y'all, then a few more minutes later, our doorbell rang, and his doctor, internist, who has never visited our home, he was friends with Fred, but he's never come out. I said, oh, my goodness, did Fred call you? And he goes, no, I just was sitting at home and thought, I need to go see Fred. And I said, you do need to see Fred. <laughs> I think he needs to go to the hospital. And he looked at Fred. He goes, Fred, you know, I think, I think you might should go to the hospital for a little bit. And Fred looked, and he goes, oh, you're an answer to prayer. <laughs> he, he didn't want to give up for me. And then, um, <laughs> so that was June 4th. He spent a few days in the hospital. Then he came home and just progressed. He didn't have to stay in bed long, really, Till the end of his life but on June the 17th I had spoken with our minister and y'all don't well, I didn't say this but our daughter was getting married on June the 28th and our son had just married on May the 10th and when he was Fred was taking me back up the aisle on May the 10th he goes you know what when Josephine gets married, this Fred had gotten married in Atlanta. When Josephine gets married, I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to feel so good. And sure enough, he was perfect. He was with Jesus. Um, you know, but the wedding went on. But 
there was going to be a mini wedding. I'm kind of jumping around here, but there was going to be a mini wedding on the 18th. But I canceled it. I said, Fred is just, he's really not with it. So we're not going to do it. Don't don't come. So the a nurse had come out to take some, either cap off his portacath or put some medicine in it. I'm not sure what. And she said, Mr. Schaefer is so restless. What do you think is wrong? And I said, well, you know, he's trying to make it to our daughter's wedding. And but and our, our minister was going to come out and do a little mini wedding, but I canceled because he's just not, he's not with it. He, she goes, no, you go call your minister right now and have him come out. So this is another way God showed himself. So the minister came out, stood over the bed. He goes, Fred, can you hear me? And Fred did say one word, just like this. And he goes, Fred, we're about to have a wedding. And he goes, do you want me to stand up? He said, no, you don't have to stand up. <laughs> you do not have to stand up. And so just a very short part of the ceremony and then he said, thank you, Lord, that the wages meant was short. And he says, um, Mr. and Ms. Schaefer, do you give Josephine to be married to Robert? Yes. And then Fred goes, thank you, Lord, I made it. I love that little girl. And that just, you know, he thought he was at the church. He did. And he died the next morning. And it was just beautiful for Josephine to have that for <laughs> This is funny. Robert goes, okay, we're married now. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> he says, you're messing with my hormones. <laughs> oh, God. And then I just want to talk just briefly about my grandson, Robert, who Josephine's third child. Um, she was 36, and she went for her four-month ultrasound. And they kept going, oh. Oh, oh, and it turns out he had trisomy 13. And tri I didn't even know the word trisomy before, but now I do. Because trisomy 21 is downs, trisomy 13 is fatal. But we did the amniocentesis, or she did, just to be sure, because otherwise we could have had surgeons set up for the delivery, but it, they wouldn't have helped. So... But she said to the doctor, and they had just moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, so she had a brand-new OB, and she said, well, I'm going to carry this baby. And he goes, well, I'm so glad you said that, because if you weren't, you'd have to leave our practice. We do not do abortions. Isn't that wonderful? That was a, such an encouragement to her, because apparently a lot of doctors will say, oh, you don't want to fool with that. Anyway, so she carried him almost full term. Her two girls were never... She never, she never went into labor with them. She had to be induced. So they set May 15th for the inducement and the C-section because she'd had C-sections before. And um, because her second little girl was going to have a birthday on May 12th, and she didn't want to interfere with that. So it was going to be after that. Well, you know, our ways are not God's ways. April 29th, early, early morning, she calls. She goes, well, my water has broken, and I am in labor. I said, oh, praise the Lord. So <laughs> I got in the car, went over, and sweet Robert was born. He lived 19 hours, adorable. He held her finger. The girls got to hold him, and he had the only thing visible on the outside was a cleft palate, and I prayed that it would not be a bother to the girls if they wouldn't panic. 
Well, he looked, if you just looked at him quickly, it looked like a pacifier in his mouth. So that was not troubling to them at all. And that was, a, that was just such an answer to prayer. And so, but the sweet thing, my eight-year-old eight granddaughter then, I, when I picked her up from school the next day after he had died, I said, I said, Neil, um, Robert's with Jesus now, but just think he's going to be all healed. His little mouth will be perfect. She said, oh, I thought he was beautiful. And seeing that the sweetest, she just looked at him with such love. So I just, we just do all have suffering, but we know that God is in control. He meets us where we need to be, be met. And he showed us all these examples, me and Fred, when he was alive, about how he was with us. And so um, it was so wonderful to watch Fred die in peace. He did not panic. He did not struggle. I mean, he was just peaceful. He did wait for our son Fred to come, though. <laughs> Everybody was there, and I know he, he wasn't speaking anymore. But his eyes were wide open, and he was just there. But Fred came up the stairs, and he said, Dad. And then within minutes, he was gone. He was just had to hear that voice. So I just say, it is well with my soul, and I'm just thankful to the Lord for holding us up. Thank you. We're now going to hear from Kevin and Lee Holt and uh, their story about little Gabriel. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Kevin Holt. This is my wife, Lee. And we are blessed with uh, three uh, perfectly, wonderfully made children. Um, our first is Gabriel. Our second is uh, Dorothy. Uh, she's eight years old. And our third is Charlie, and he'll actually be seven tomorrow. Um, and uh, Lee and I, we got married here at this church in 2011. And in 2013, we found out the wonderful news that uh, we were going to have a baby. And um, we were super excited. Um, and we went to every doctor's appointment that we had um, and heard the heartbeat. Uh, and we were just super excited and very thankful. Um, and then came the 20-week uh, uh, ultrasound. And um, we were super excited about that because that means we were actually going to get to see uh, the baby for the first time and maybe find out the gender. Um, so we went, and God had a different plan. Uh, we did uh, have the ultrasound, uh, but all we could see on the monitor was really just a lot of uh, blurriness, cloudiness. Uh, it didn't make a lot of sense to Lee and I at all. We were trying to figure out what we were looking at. And the technician had a very worried look on her face, and she kept trying and trying again, and she looked very worried. Uh, and then brought in the doctor, and uh, even though we couldn't figure out what was going on, uh, the doctor knew that um, uh, the baby, who is Gabriel, uh, had uh, a condition that uh, inside the womb, he would, um, he would survive until birth and likely be carried uh, through the entire term. 
but outside of the womb, once he was born, uh, he wouldn't survive, but for maybe a minute or two. So this was very devastating news, obviously. Um, we cried a lot uh, at that moment. Uh, we cried for days and days. We were very, very sad. But as sad as we were, um, God brought us close to him. Uh, and he really increased our faith in him uh, in so many different ways. And it would take a long time uh, to talk about all that entails. Uh, tonight, you're going to hear from Lee. Um, Lee is going to talk about how she's changed, how God changed her life from that day forward. Um, and you're going to hear from her primarily because uh, she, as the mother, the carrier of the baby, uh, she had a connection with Gabriel that only a mom could possibly know. And she has a lot to say about it. And she has read to me what she has to say. And, and I've read it again. And I am convinced it's written by the Holy Spirit. And you all need to hear this, what she has to say. And real quickly before I, I hand it over, um, to tie on to what Josephine said, Lee and I did not know Josephine at that time. Uh, she was a familiar face, but we didn't know her. Um, and she heard our situation, heard about our situation. And she had already had the situation with baby Robert. So she uh, uh, befriended us and told us the story and then got us in touch with her daughter and son-in-law. And within a few days, uh, I think it was the following Saturday, they showed up at our house. And we didn't know them, they were total strangers. Um, and they came to our house uh, from, I think they were in Little Rock at the time. Uh, and they came all the way over to meet with us. And they sat down for hours um, talking about their baby, their story, uh, showed us pictures of baby Robert. They cried with us. They prayed with us. I still remember uh, Robert reading, um, uh, uh, praying Psalm 139 with us. Uh, and it was a very, very special time. Total strangers. Uh, but we felt like so close to them at that time. Um, so I thought that would uh, be an interesting uh, thing to bring up. But um, anyway, here's Lee. If you can give your undivided attention to Lee. You want me to hold this one? Yes, okay. I can't even hold the microphone. The more traumatic the shock, the longer time freezes, and the more delayed your body is in responding and processing. God was very kind to us. Our trauma was gradual, and our goodbye came with advance notice. We had a fatal di diagnosis at our 20-week ultrasound and then carried Gabriel 11 more weeks, all the time praying for a miracle and not knowing if we'd ever know what that miracle would be. Then at a, exactly 31 weeks, we delivered Gabriel into the arms of Jesus and we grieved with each other and with IPC. God was over-the-top kind to us in terms of how he presented this loss to us. We didn't have other children in the home. We were blanketed with friends, and this church held us tightly. 
God was present. Would you believe suffering in the presence of God is a blessing? It yields freedom and security. For me, it was surrender and acceptance almost immediately, followed by peace, then joy. Not because the pain goes away, but because the pain is met by a balm, the presence of God that cannot be explained. It can only be felt. It's personal to me. Wipe away all tears. How intimate is that? It's touched by the hand of God. He won't put a box of tissues near you. He'll gently touch your face. You know how you feel when your husband gives you a peck on the cheek and keeps walking? Then there's what happens. When your husband holds your face in both his hands and he kisses you. I'm not suggesting a romance with God. I am suggesting a safeness and closeness and all-encompassing, total-touch compassion for you, his child. Of course, he had to turn his face from Jesus on the cross. He did it to save you. He did it to save all of us. Thank you, Heavenly Daddy. Thank you, Jesus. I really do take God at his word. That's one of the most obvious blessings about losing Gabriel. God asked me whether I believed. Not with words, but in every other possible way. And I do believe. Of course he appointed a whale to be a place for Jonah to live for three days. That is how he made that whale glorify him. Of course he touched Gabriel with bilateral, multicystic, dysplastic kidneys. He formed those kidneys with that exacting precision for his glory. He made every one of us for his glory. You've heard it said, if God were small enough for me to understand entirely, he would not be big enough for me to trust entirely. Gabriel went to heaven January 25th, 2014. It'll be 10 years in January. There are countless ways you cared for us. One way I haven't told before is this. Leslie Sykes had me over for lunch after her first son, Sam, was born. And he was the first baby I held since Gabriel died. I didn't ask to hold him. She just positioned him my way and then left the room to do something. Sam didn't die. He kept breathing. I let myself get lost in his eyes, and the tears leaked out. How long was it? A few minutes? That baby did more to heal me than any adult could have done. God appointed that infant in that moment to help me. Not all babies die around me. This one can live. I still pray for Sam Sykes. I'm convinced if he turns out to be phenomenal and the rest of her kids are just okay, <laughs> it's because he has two moms' hearts praying for him.
Now, I say, I say this for a couple of reasons. Being present is what matters in grief. Keep your mouth shut, and the Holy Spirit will do the rest. And second, to drill in my point about time standing still, if you had asked me, I would have said our kids were born weeks apart. It was about five months. Don't rush anyone through their grief. As mild as our shock was compared to others, time in the calendar does not match up with your feelings and your processing. I cannot stress enough the importance of getting grief and trauma counseling. I remember sitting in Lori Keith's office and telling her, and having her tell us, both Kevin and me, that we were grieving well. I didn't know that was a thing, but I was so relieved to have a professional tell me so. I love the verse about seeing through a mirror dimly. Now I know in part, then I shall know in full, just as I am fully known, fully touched. We're not supposed to get it on this side of heaven. I remember when our Sunday school class lamented in prayer right after Glenn was murdered. A few elders strongly protested to God. I prayed out, out loud that day too, and I also prayed for the shooter, but I held back. What I wanted to pray was this. I wanted to pray that one day the man who shot Glenn would be in heaven praising God alongside Glenn with him not knowing who he was. I wanted that human to be rescued by Jesus. And at the time, Kimpy Craddock Jenkins had just gone to heaven after a decades-long battle with cancer. I wanted to pray that as those men stood there praising God, Kimpy would bounce over like only she can and say, you guys are never going to believe how you knew each other on earth. And those men would look at each other briefly, smile, and then all three would turn back to worshiping God. They're standing in his glory, his embrace, and their past circumstances would not matter to either of them. They were in God's presence. I did not pray that out loud on that day. It was too fresh. The pain was too palpable from Glenn's closest friends. When you are near the trauma, keep your mouth shut and your arms open. There are people who generally live on the side of life who want Jesus to return more than anything. Suffering is personal. For me, it was the hand-picked, Lee-sized way for God to show me he loves me. He is protecting me from something worse. And I don't have to know what that is to know that it's true. I spent years crying in line at Kroger. Recently, I took a turn into racing to talk about God in that same line and everywhere I go. I compliment the cashier on something sincere. They make eye contact. I say, you could be the only touch of Jesus that somebody has today. Thank you for that. I watch their body language relax. And then they look at me like I'm human. We pause, we acknowledge God, and I think they're a little bit nicer to the next person in line because of it. I have never had anyone say, what God? 
How dare you? Everyone is going through something. Point them to Christ at every opportunity. Encourage their faith. Attending funerals was especially hard in those early years. I would cry the ugly cry, even at the visitations, and have to find a bathroom and then have to sneak out, get to my car, and cry again. It wasn't because of the loss. It was because a person I knew was now with Gabriel, and I knew it was real. My dad says, make every effort to go to weddings, but always go to funerals. Power tools of grief, praise, prayer, rest, staying in community with the saints, and rebuking Satan, and find a way to process it. I used writing. Putting something on paper lets you be transparent with the people you trust. I trusted everyone, so I posted it as a blog. I did that because I was too tired to repeat every detail to every loved one, and because we wanted prayers from God's people. We also wanted to point our non-believing friends to Christ. Rebuke Satan in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. It works. Merely mentioning Jesus' name focuses your mind on Jesus, and Satan cannot tolerate that. Use your tools, friends. My experience has made me comfortable with trauma around me. I show up at Labonner and I pray with parents. If I don't have a room number, I pray for them in the parking lot. A few days before Christmas, a campus school family lost their home to a fire. The very next morning, an email went out with only their names. People wondered what to do. I used my real estate skills and went straight to the house. There stood the dad, alone in the front yard, staring at his feet. In one motion, I hugged him and said, I'm a campus mom. He didn't need my name. He wouldn't have heard it anyway. I asked him if I could pray for his family, so I put a hand on his shoulder and prayed. I had a notebook. I wrote down their food info, kids' clothing size, address of the Airbnb where they'd be for five days. I realized that meant Christmas, so I asked what I could get the kids over the top for Christmas. The dad knew instantly. I kept my kids waiting in the car with insight the whole time. My children understand sometimes our plans get changed to help a neighbor. They understand a neighbor is anyone God puts in our path. If you are calm in trauma, don't assume someone else will do it. Just do it. A note, a meal, an anonymous gift. This church met all our needs for months and months and years and years, and you taught me that. Thank you for that. Every individual gesture, gesture built a blanket of protection and support for us that I can't wrap my head around even today. Thank you again for that. And thank you, Kevin, for holding me and never letting go. You are the best influence I could ever have. Thank you for leading me safely and sagely. Suffering comes in all shapes and sizes. I have a great dad. I think that's why it's easy for me to see my heavenly daddy as a father figure. 
I trailed my dad my entire childhood, and he equipped me with self-confidence and street sense. My dad is 86 now, and I'm already grieving his slow decline. That is another kindness from the Lord. A few weeks ago, a sample server at Costco saw him shuffling by and said, Have a good day, young man. And the tears flowed from me. Thank you, I mouthed to the man as I followed Dad down the next aisle. If you ever need a favor from me, show respect to my father, and I will go to the moon and back for you. Dad didn't see my tears, and I tried to pull it together. Then came the Holy Spirit again. Dad asked me to go back for a giant box of Cheez-Its, and I had to cross the man again. I walked straight to him, asked him if he was a hugger, and held him tightly. He offered me a Kleenex because out came fresh tears. I thanked him for encouraging my faith and for being the face of Jesus to me in that moment. Everyone is going through something. Be kind. We are all made in the image of God. I feel things strongly, and I share things boldly. Life is one second long. And I race to bring up God through grateful tears and blotchy skin. I am all in because I trust my Lord, and he knows best. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you all for sharing holy stories with us tonight. Each one of your stories is holy in the midst of the suffering that you've endured in Jesus' name. Thank you for teaching us the theme of the previous three weeks, what we heard in the first week, faith, hope, and love, sustaining us in our suffering, what we heard from George about going to Jesus in the midst of our darkness, and then what we heard last week from Parker, that, that lament is the bridge that connects our fear to our faith. Thank you for telling us and embodying that for us. Would you all pray with me, please? Father, we, we've been standing on holy ground. These stories that have been shared with us by our friends, have, they're holy and precious, and we are so grateful to have heard them tonight. Lord, we do pray that these embodied, hope-filled stories, though they're hard and painful and sad and broken, yet filled with hope, because of filled with you, you, Lord, may we, may we walk away with, with some glimmer of hope for ourselves. Because as Leah has just reminded us, we are all going through something. We're all bearing burdens and sadness and, and darkness and hard. Lord, please renew our hope tonight. Be our God, our gracious Savior tonight. And draw near to us in ways that will cause us to hope again. Grant us this grace through Jesus the Son. By your Holy Spirit we ask, for it's in your name we pray it. Amen.